Hello, everyone. This is Artemis of the Uncivilized Podcast. This is part two of the conversation with Jamie. Jamie is a good friend, uh, lives up in Alaska, kind of doing his own, I guess you can say, homestead or primitive living situation. Uh, because this is part two, I would, of course, recommend you listen to part one, which is much more centered on anthropology and his kind of background coming to primitivism. Well, part two gets into a bit of a larger critique. Uh, thank you for listening. Let's wind it back because I know you didn't want to lose that thought. The complex versus simple idea. Let's let's return to that. Let's get back to what that means. Oh yeah. There's no reason to invalidate the idea of simple hunter gatherers, but there's that term is also has received some backlash, specifically because of like um the complexity of that politic that we were talking about before, right? The sophistication of that politic, of that that anarchist politic, like the sophisticated way they keep they keep up on it. So that's one thing that's, you know, we don't want to simplify too much. And then, yeah, the, the sort of uh, the ritual and animistic beliefs of some of these hunter-gatherers can be pretty complex. The social networking, uh, the, their, no- their right. knowledge of, of the landscape and all the features and every right? So there's some complexity. Uh, the problem is, is that when people use the term some simple hunter-gatherers uh, to describe uh, what I think it's really valid, which is... They're economically simple, you know, uh, again, immediate return, living to be, not to have, um, uh, living in a small scale groupings, um, not allowing things to, you know, not ending up sedentary and building all this complex, large populations with all these sophisticated uh, bureaucracies and rules and regulations and, and so on, right? And and power structures. So this is why why the term simple is valid. Um, but that always needs to get qualified. Uh, the, again, the postmodernist thinking people reacted to the term simple, uh, simple hunter gather with, with, with a will, but, but aren't they complicated in their ritual life? And we shouldn't use the, call them simple. That's degrading, you know? And it's the same argument they use. Like when they say, uh, like if you said, uh, these hunter gatherers aren't civilized and then they'll say, Oh my God, that's so degrading. They're actually, they are civilized, you know, they're, they're more civilized than we are. So they always want to like spin it that way to like, so it's not degrading. And it's like, it just gets ridiculous actually. But, um, but not to get in the weeds on that, uh, uh, to, to complexity, um, uh, complex hunter gatherers. So going back to, to, to delayed return, uh, Lewis Benford, um, Around that same time when these discussions were kind of happening in anthropology in the 80s, Lewis Benford, uh, he came up north to Alaska and um, worked with New Nanamuit people. And he developed a term called logistical collectors. And he, he wanted to differentiate between hunter collectors and hunter foragers or hunter gatherers. Right, right. His idea was that uh, collecting, uh, collecting is something that it's a logistical process and it has to happen you can't just be foraging like a media return is like you're foraging you're just wandering around eating what you find it's like it's almost it's where it's fair to say it's hand to mouth essentially hand to mouth. right it's hand to mouth yeah you know but it i mean i've spent time with immediate return hunter gatherers it's not necessarily so hand to mouth but yeah that in a way that'd right. be like a the most far end of it you know um most mm-hmm. simple spec on the end on the spectrum you know Right, and of course, I'm making a bit of a caricature, but yeah, I get you. Yeah, it's not, it's not entirely hand to mouth. I mean, but but again, on that spectrum, like you get, uh, 
we'll get to the, the far end, the actual complex hunter-gatherer, but what Benford noticed was that these people had to logistically plan ahead to know when these resources would be available uh, at certain times of the year, and they would have to move camps to, to capture all of these resources, and they weren't just living day-to-day on what they were getting. They were logistically capturing those resources so they could store them for the upcoming winter because of course the winter is so harsh you need to have a supply of food or you will not make it however so he called those hunter collectors and that was an aspect of delayed return you know but the well the difference though is is that those groups weren't turning those stored resources that they logistically collected into these power structures Complex hunter-gatherers are the type of people who do do that, okay? So complex hunter-gatherers are this, are, are this, is this uh, evolution where uh, people end up in these, uh, generally they end up in these resource-abundant locations. In fact, it couldn't exist without a lot of resource abundance. Um, and, mm-hmm. and rather than use those resources to live, to be, not to have, like for just subsistence, like uh, it, with an immediate return, not necessarily a physical immediate return way of doing it, meaning uh, not storing it, but with an immediate return political ethos and an immediate return type of psychology, which again, people who there's proven that people who do store food for the winter still operate with an immediate return uh, level of uh, economic psychology. The complex hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. throws that all aside. They actually really start turning resource abundance and surplus into power okay and and uh the the classic example and there's examples all around the world in fact these are the people who created agriculture these are the people who made gobekli tepe and so on uh but the classic example in anthropology and the most close to home uh for most of us is the northwest coast tribes who are notorious for uh, having chiefs control uh the abundance of the salmon runs and the mouths of the rivers, and then all of these groups, from everything we can see, had pretty much incessant conflict, warfare. They all kept slaves. Um, that's complex hunter-gatherers, and complex hunter-gatherers were actually pretty common all around Native America um, when um, when Europeans arrived in, a, in the continent. Um, so we really need to pay attention to that. This is why you do not generalize indigenous people uh, not all indigenous people are innocent just because they're indigenous, you know, and not all hunter gatherers are innocent uh, because they're hunter gatherers. Certain hunter gatherers absolutely create hierarchy and 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 lead us on these trajectories. It all had to start, like you said, it all has to start somewhere, right? And it it did start with hunter gatherers. That's right. Uh, it's certain hunter gatherers developed these complexities, and and they 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 grew large populations. They grew uh, intense economic uh, uh, trading regimes. Um, they, they again, they had slaves. They, they, they tend to have war. Um, they have, yeah, orga- organized violence. Uh, the hierarchies, are, they have pretty yeah. serious stratification. Certain families uh, have more power than others. Uh, the lowest people on the totem pole are the slaves. They capture slaves. That reminds me. I, um... Kaczynski's piece, uh, his critique of primitive life, a critique of anarcho-primitivism, or the truth of primitive life, a critique of anarcho-primitivism. I remember one of the pieces he talks about as well. The North, the Pacific Northwest hunter-gatherers, they had slaves. See, hunter-gatherers do all this bad shit. 
they were settled fishermen. Like these aren't hunter gatherers like we're talking about. These are extremely delayed return because you can't like I can't really fathom slavery in an immediate return. Like my brain just can't conceive of that. Right? Everyone can conceive, but is it based in reality? Right? But like the settled people that rely on a steady stream of fish, like you're talking about, like that's not what we're talking about. And some people are like, oh, you're just choosing, you're you're nitpicking. It's like, but we're describing substantial differences between settled or aggregate uh, uh, and non-aggregate hunter-gatherer people. In the same way, it's like what like when a when an anarchist argues with like a liberal, they're like, well, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't really socialism, right? To me. Like, yeah, that's fair argument. So why can't you allow us to make a similar argument in differentiating between these two groups or types of groups rather? You know what I mean? It just yeah, I mean, this up. is the thing is every people, I'm not going to say Kaczynski was lazy. He, he obviously wasn't lazy, but he didn't do the entire, well, he, you know, when he was writing that stuff, he was in prison. He he only had access to so much material. And I think he even qualified that, right? Um, but to to sort all this mm -hmm. out, you have to do your homework, really. And, and you need, you know, one thing that I, that I, I just, uh, I scoff at is when you hear, uh, even people who claim to be anti-civ anarchists, uh, you know, say, uh, oh, you know, forget anthropology. We don't need to read all that, or we don't need to know all that. Well, in fact, in fact, the thing is, right. uh, the map to the maze is found in all these documents, not necessarily in books. It's in a lot of anthropological journal articles and other, and, th and things like that. Right. And, um, if you don't read all that stuff and get to understand these fundamental realities that have been proven, you know, with all this, this data, then, then you're, you're, you're never going to have it be able to map all this out. And so unless people are paying attention right. to all this stuff, then, then I, I can't take them seriously because if you pay attention to it, it's pretty clear and it's not that complicated. It's pretty clear what the mechanisms are. If you're an anarchist and you want to avoid hierarchy, it's pretty clear what the me mechanisms are. It really is. Yeah. And so just to clarify, cause I got a little lost uh, and maybe it's just cause my brain starting to slow down on me here. Um, you said that the hunter, the hunter collector does not necessarily immediately correlate with a complex, a so-called complex group. Oh. Is, is that what you're saying? Just because they do the logistics doesn't necessarily does not necessitate the jump from logistics to stratification. Absolutely, because you start like on salmon rivers, uh, you start to you notice that the level of hierarchy uh, goes from extreme to uh, lower and lower, and then nail the further you get up river. <laughs> Right, it, mm -hmm. but that does. There's still winter. They still have to stockpile. Right, but like the like the Dene groups, they're some like uh, Peter Gardner is called some Canadian Dene anarchists, and um, I think there's some good truth to that. They're, the Dene groups are like diverse. Uh, they're they're diverse groups, uh, but they they did they did not they definitely had some some patriarchy and and some hierarchy and some war and territorialism and things. They're not like these African people. But the thing is, they weren't they weren't turning salmon into all this power. At least one thing I was just reading was that they were influenced by the by the by the coastal groups like the Klingons, right. and they developed they developed their own potlatch ceremonies and stuff like in, in hierarchy because they got in these trading relationships with the Klingons, and then they started to become more hierarchical through that influence of tr of trading, 
and probably around the times that the Klingits were getting European goods from the coast, and it kind of initiated this feedback. Yeah. Same. Um, I mean, what what is but, the book uh, you've recommended that this is reminding me of? Is the uh, Thundersticks? What is uh, this idea of becoming reliant? What is that book? Thundersticks something. Oh, th- uh, Thundersticks, the uh, firearms and the violent transformation of America of Native America. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important book to read. You really want to understand some some cultural materialism at the level of right. uh, the industri- the the European industrial goods mechanism, and then see how that what that does to the to the how that puts people in psychosis. You know, mm-hmm. uh, read that book, uh, understand what happened there, like this this gun psychology and what how sociopathic it is and uh uh the thing is who are the people who fell into that trap the most it's the complex hunter gatherers right right? uh the more the more egalitarian like non-complex hunter gatherers were the ones that steered further away from being involved like for example the shoshone some of the shoshone not all the ones in the desert uh the the mountain shoshone some of the paiute they never got horses. They they said, "Ah, we don't want to deal with this," because mm-hmm. the people getting horses were turning into these to these traders. You know, these warring traders. They were using yeah. horses to get. Why were they getting using horses? Was it to survive? Uh, yeah, to a degree, they were getting a lot of food because they had horses. But they were using the horses to harvest a surplus that they could trade for European goods. Mm-hmm. And so, when you see people like Shoshone, who again, you could call them delayed return because to survive in the Great Basin. Uh, over winter you're going to need to store food uh so they're going to have some kind of logistical collecting to store a surplus but like some of those great basin shoshone to me represent the closest model we have to american uh, immediate return hunter gatherers the closest model we have to uh, north american people who lived kind of as close as possible to people like bushman uh, or hadza mm-hmm and we're we're going to circle back to the Hadza, but I had this question early on I really wanted to ask, and it relates kind of your book and some of the things we've talked about. And this is in terms of anthropology. You use the term, I believe, both radical but also applied anthropology in regards to rewilding. Um, can you talk about what does applied anthropology mean and how is it important to the anarcho-primitivist critique? Yeah, I mean, it's that's a term I took from anthropology, which is applied anthropology is kind of like the policy science side of of anth- of of anthropological research so it's like you do this anthropological research then whatever the data is you use that that then you're as an applied anthropologist you're using that data to try to like apply it to solving a problem like you, often it has to do with like some sort of work for the government or like an NGO or like some development project and so that's like i'm an applied anthropologist you know like i'm working to like to use the anthropological data to to actually do something with it physically you know on the ground so i took that i I just kind of swiped that and i said well if you study all if you study all this deeper you know radical anthropology stuff you and i have been talking about like from this anarchist level well an apply and rewilders are the ultimate applied anthropologists right Mm -hmm. and because what rewilders are doing is taking, actually, I, in my book, I'm saying they're raiding the coffers. This is the direct quote, raiding the coffers of anthropological data and then stealing it and taking it from these academics who 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 think they own it and using it to actually rewild and do something physically with themselves to resist and rebel against this, this monstrosity rather than just, uh, you know, keeping it in the ivory tower. So that's why I, what I'm using it. 
and under in the yeah. that that format. Yeah, and so that actually that so in the conversation with John that just went up the other day, I was having this conversation, and you and I have talked about this, especially with that anti-fascist. What is it? Stone Age and anti-fascism, anti-fascist Stone Age. What's the book again? Oh, that's called uh, Back to the Stone Age. Back to the Stone Age. Yeah. So, like, our conversations around that text, um, as well as like how leftists treat anthropology. And what's interesting is if you don't, if anarch- if anarchists of the leftist type continue to to marginalize primitivists from anarchist spaces, from the anti-civilization critique, um, more and more an- eco-fascists, I think, are going to be able to co-opt the anti-civilization the broader anti-civilization critique, which, because you can be, in my opinion, authoritarian primitivist in a lot of ways, uphold this caricature that's that's wrong, right? Like ITS and all that weird shit they were into um, with eco-extremism. But the more and more you marginalize anarcho-primitivists who are able to, as you say, raid the coffers and, and apply anthropology in a radical way, in an anti-fascist way, because, you know, in the book, in the, the people you're criticizing, Lavi et al., um, they do, do do talk about how like there is a nationalist bend to how some people discuss and apply anthropology to politics. Yeah. Right. Um, but if you do, if you don't allow us to combat that and all you do is, Oh no, this postmodern critique, it doesn't origins don't matter. None of this matters. You're allowing them to be the only ones that have the space. And eco, I think primitivists are going to be important. I think, because I do think eco-fascism is more of a threat than pe- some people let on. And I don't want to get into all that right now. But if you don't allow primitivists to hold that space, they're going to monopolize on it. And more and more people are coming around to that critique. So if there's not an anarchist entryway or or value there, then you're doing the footwork for the eco-fascists as a leftist, in my opinion. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is the thing is that the, this is why you have this, in a way, you know, a, a kind of... A, uh, understandable gut reaction from these from these uh, anthropologists who are going against going after rewilding and anti-civ and, and the and the contemporary interest in, in prehistory and primitivism, because what they're seeing is is how some right wing type people are using prehistory and primitivist type thinking for their agenda, and um, so they're mm-hmm. so they're they're rightfully attacking that, uh, which is good. But right. the thing is. What they're trying to do, though, is because, again, my belief is they, they don't want to deal with primitivism at all. They find it too threatening to their own world. They, they found it, oh, mm-hmm. well, the right-wingers are using primitivism for their agenda, so we're going to cancel primitive entirely. This gives us, it's kind of like this, this gives us the chance, the opportunity to completely cancel rewilding. Because right-wingers are using it, so now we can just get rid of it as a whole. Because the way, like, that pitcher guy puts it, and it's back to the Stonies, it's kind of like, if you're interested in prehistory, you're a racist. You're, you're a white nationalist, you know, like, it's kind of like, that's kind of the essentializing uh, message that he has, you know what I mean? And, um, so this is, we absolutely have to combat this because if we throw out this anthropological knowledge of what it really means to be an anarchist and be free and also to actually live an actually ecologically sane and mentally sane and socially sane human way of life, if we throw that out because of this political correctness and this, this desire to like go after these right-wingers then we're fucked you know like right, exactly we're losing the ultimate wisdom because we're allowing these two political sides that are both full of shit to hijack it all you know and take it right and get, so we right. can't do that we have to fight for this we got to fight those right-wingers and fight these these leftists uh mm-hmm. these, these academics we can't we can't we can't let any of them get away with it 
you know, and but it's, they, after a ba- it's an uphill battle we got, man. It really fucking, it really fucking is. Yeah, well, I'm not giving up. Uh, and uh, yeah, so in that book, there, in that Back to the Stone Age, there's some good points made that people should be aware of, of like how that that book's written from the UK, and uh, so there's a that's the other thing I'm I'm talking about is how you know the, a lot of this a lot of this is surfacing from the UK and. Uh, so I'm talking about how, uh, look, when you, again, it's a cultural materialist argument when you're, when you're born and raised in the UK and that's your environment and that's what you're facing, you're going to have a different view than people who are in North America. So that's one thing, right? But he makes the point how, uh, uh, you know, some people have used, uh, some white British, uh, white nationalists in Britain try to use like archeology span and stuff to like assert that, you know, they're the original uh, British, you know, like they were using, like, there, there's some pretty cool case studies in there that he talks about that, that are, that are really good to show how, yeah, some of these people use, uh, prehistory to try to assert like right-wing nationalist ideas and people go read that book and have a look at it if you're interested, but it's valid. What he, the critique he's making on that is absolutely valid. He, um, right. he talks about how Alex Jones was using a term called paleoconservative. And I never had heard that before. And I thought, right. geez. Yep, paleoconservative. Yeah, yep. and uh, so one thing he talks about is how, like, Gaudi and and others, and I'm citing it too, that, you know, there's a 10 to 11, a 10 or 11% brain size reduction in sapiens since agriculture. And I think that's a very important thing mm-hmm. to highlight. It's an absolutely important thing. There's a lot of reasons for that, you know. Read Gaudi's book about and how we've been dumbed down by being in, in these uh what he calls ultra social societies like we we were we're not as smart as we were when we were hunter gatherers okay now i didn't realize that alex jones had taken that data or that that message and tried to use that to sell supplements and say he's grow your brain power so you can get out of being dumb and come back to being like a hunter gatherer right he always talks about he's like get back to nature and but of course he's it's it's interesting but the term paleoconservative I will say he uses it differently because it's a part of his marketing scheme. Paleoconservative is kind of this like, because, you know, for those that keep up with this, there's like neoliberal and neoconservative and those two overlap a lot. Paleoconservative is often used as like a, we need to return to like traditional conservative values because they think modern conservatism is just too liberal, essentially, particularly on things like gay rights and immigration. Sure. Um, a lot of people consider like DeSantis to be kind of like a paleoconservative, but then yet like Jones uses his like appeal to nature in a reactionary, like fasci- literally fascistic way. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, this is, there's a lot so. of discussion too about how, yeah, this fascist type people have back to the nature, you know, there's always the, Oh, well, you know, Hitler was back to nature, you know, you'll get that. So, you know, but the thing is, is I've seen that. What happens yeah. with the, the timid, the timid liberal left, you know, they just, they hear this stuff and they cower away like, Oh my God, don't mention, don't mention primitivism. You know? Oh my God, you can't say that. You know, like they use that as an Mm -hmm. excuse to not deal with their own domestication is what I was saying before. Right. So, so this is, we, we can't, we're not, we should not back down because these right wingers try to use this stuff. We should, we should, we need to uh, call it for what it is, you know? And um, I mean, that's the stuff I'm working on with my writing. Um, to try to do that, to get in the faces of all these people. Um, I'm not going to let them hijack what it means to be a human being uh, for their, for their stupid politics, you know? Um, 
I'm not going to let them hijack the actual, real, authentic history of who we are, you know, as immediate return hunter-gatherers, really, uh, and, try to, and try to destroy that right. message with this stupid stuff. No, we need to fight for that message. That's the message that matters. Um, it really does matter, and in, in it was actually affirmed for me because I just spent uh, a month in Tanzania where I was visiting uh, with the Hadza people on the ground, and I, I had made the point that um, yeah. I saw it right verified right in front of my eyes like on the ground right before me that is actually is legitimate like you're act, you're looking at people who live uh to the best of their ability now as actual anarchists and all that naysaying that you got from even within the even within the anti-seven anarchist community you know um it all just like for me flew out the window completely i mean I've, i was never aligned with that but I'm just like, I wish Kevin, or I wish the people who critiqued Kevin Tucker for so long for being ideological could have been sitting there with me in that Hadza camp and then said, yeah, what do you got to say now? Because you're, you're telling me this isn't real? You're telling right. me these aren't actually free people? You know, that, that live... Right, because John, or excuse me, not John, uh, Kevin is, you know, like John, you know, talks about contemporary peoples, but he's a bit more to the history and the critical theory, and that's a true for a lot of... Uh, in our primitivist, but Kevin, like through a lot of his work has talked about like contemporary hunter gatherers, right? Like this isn't in the past, right? Cause people criticize primitivism for like, Oh, it's concerned with the past, but like there is stuff in the present right now. And Kevin has done that work and I appreciate it. And you make a great point. Like, Oh, it's ideological. It's a caricature. He's just making it up. And then you're like, no, I'm, I'm literally witnessing That's what I'm it saying. Right and, and, the, and, and the way Kevin, uh, frame things sometimes wasn't always perfect. And, uh, whatever i mean he he really put his heart and soul into that stuff and uh and he he fought for it pretty heavily and he you know he's tough to argue with um uh, he sticks to his ideas you know but what he was saying when he was always asserting you know uh surplus is the problem uh media return hunter gatherers i mean he was he got into the woodburn thing way back uh the immediate return delayed return distinction and when you read some of these, I was going through some of mm -hmm. these critiques of anarcho-primitivism, uh, like on Anarchist News, because I wanted to go through a bunch of them to, just so I could uh, to use them for some of this book I'm working on um, as references and stuff. And I was trying to going through all that, and uh, I realized, like, you know, some of the reasons why people were trying to call Kevin out, you know, uh, at that time. And um, uh, then I then I thought about that when I was sitting there with the Hadza, and I was like. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, through all the flaws that so many uh, people who asserted this stuff, Kevin, whoever, uh, had at times, the, it, when it's all said and done, uh, the anarcho-primitivist idea was completely correct, and I'm just sitting here looking at it right now. Like, I'm seeing actually happy, happy, free, healthy human beings that don't rely uh, really at all. I mean, they do rely a little bit on the outside world but really can get by like young children who can get by without any reliance on power you now. And, and um, you're just seeing it. I'm, you're seeing optimal right. human fitness in respect to like social, ecological, economic well-being, you know, and, and there's no hierarchy and you're seeing people actually sharing uh, in that way that's been described in all that literature. Like people says, Oh, what did you learn? What did you learn about the Hadza? And I says, 
you know what? Like I didn't really learn that much particularly about the Hadza. I actually just saw verified for me everything I, that I was always read about and understood. It just, I just got it verified for me. Yeah. That's actually was going to be my question is how did it impact your understanding? And from what I'm saying, it, it didn't really just affirmed everything you had already believed. Is that a fair way to present it? Totally. It just was like really self-affirming and, and, uh, yeah, I wish like again any any of any of the folks could have could have could have seen that with me, you know, whether Kevin or John or any or yeah. you or or whoever, you know, could could be there because it is really powerful. It is no joke. As my colleague there said, you know, like we got back to our own little spot where we were sleeping and he goes, "Dude, this is the real fucking deal." You know, and I said, "Yeah, 100%, dude. Like it is right. actually the real thing." And, um, and, and, you know, I'm, people might, these are just words you're hearing, but I'm telling you, I, a good, a good amount of what, what I, what I saw during that time was, was, was the real thing. And then this is a quick thing. Uh, I just thought about it is that Kevin, Kevin, like myself also uses they, them pronouns. And I did not think about that at all. Cause I haven't talked to Kevin in a little bit, but that just, that just crossed my mind. So Anyone that's listening, Kevin uses they them pronouns, and I just I just remembered that, and I apologize. Um, but moving moving on, and that may try to make a big deal out of that. Um, with, with the Hadza, for those that are not familiar, can you briefly describe who who these people are, and particularly what are their current struggles? What are they as a hunter gatherer group in twenty twenty three struggling with right now? In terms of like the external pressures. Uh, yeah, well, I'd originally mentioned, uh, let's, we could just start where I was, I'd mentioned before, which is that, you know, there's, there's speculation that, that they're representative of one of the ancestral, uh, human populations. Um, yeah. and again, that's a big, that can get into a big argument, but, um, uh, it, this is a, one of the last, they've called, been called the last of the first, uh, no, that's also refers to that that they're they're one of the last uh, uh, immediate return hunter gatherer groups left in the world. That some of them, in fact, do survive uh, as independent foragers. Um, not all, um, not the entire population. There's a few groups left that seem to be doing it um, to to a certain degree. Um, and this is in this is in Tanzania, and uh, it's very close to. Uh, some of these iconic places uh, in Tanzania, like Serengeti, Ngorongoro Crater, uh, Olduvai Gorge, um, and being that it's so close to Olduvai, which is known as one of the sort of archaeological, uh, paleontological epicenters of human evolution, um, uh, and also that um, right. it's also believed that the ancestral Hadza. Hadzabe people uh, were the only people in that area of Africa until perhaps at best 3,000 years ago, probably less. That's when the Bantu, the, the herder pastoralists show right. up, right? Yep, those or people no. come, those people are influenced by, you know, Middle Eastern agriculture and uh, uh, animal domestication and so forth. And then their populations expand in, in, in a, uh, then they need to keep moving on uh and finding new lands to isn't it insane yeah isn't it insane i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but three thousand years ago when we think history we think rome we think ancient like at the same time rome exists right like these people 
are doing hunter gatherer shit that they've been doing literally for what is what is it now that the contempt modern hunter uh homo sapiens have been around is it 400 500 years now because i know it keeps getting pushed back what are we looking well, at they here? always argue about it but the recent thing has been 300 my understanding you know but then there's like this whole like modern versus like and there's like ancestral okay, yeah. you know yeah proto homo sapien and modern and like fully evolved and that's a whole nother topic but um because it's like right. yeah can we even make these distinctions um but uh i mean i just talked to john about that like i mean if you break it down like oh it's tool use well that didn't work oh it's intelligence that didn't work it's like damn really it doesn't like like a like a so-called archaic homo sapien is substantially not that different from a, a, a so-called like late stage homo erectus in terms of capabilities and in in bodily proportions and stuff like it really gets it gets really interesting but yeah we won't <laughs> well, yeah, they, spend too much time they on even that. showed how uh, some 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 sapiens have a brain size the same as erectus so but yeah. uh yeah, where I mean, where do we stand on that? Like, I would argue going just we'll go back to go back to the Hadza thing, but uh, the uh, I would argue actually, you know, back to this evolutionary theory thing is that that um, that we become human once we're in that 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 aspect of social organization where where we have that gender mm -hmm. division of labor. You had mentioned when you asked that question, you had said talked about self domestication. Well, that's that's this other angle on domestication where where we domesticated ourselves by becoming a, becoming a living within this cooperative gender egalitarian gender gender divided division of labor type group and uh, that's probably where we become human because we're we're cooperating in this way that no other species does and and we have we're also using tools like no other species does and uh, we're provisioning see no other species provisions like that that that's that's the other difference we're, we're we're provisioning the group right we're cooperating certain members of the group are cooperating to provision the group as a whole with their basic needs anyways that might be the marker uh, now mm -hmm. uh, back where we were though sub-saharan africa was all hunter-gatherers it was ancestral sun ancestral hadza uh, there was no farmers or, or pastoralists in sub-saharan africa until like like 3,000 years at best, as I was saying, right? So that's really not that long ago. And, and what's happened ever since that occurred, that invasion of the pastoralist tribes and the farmers, the, these, these uh, hunter-gatherers have been uh, increasingly marginalized and forced to run to more marginal territories. Um, uh, so that's what happened to the Hadza. They, they probably occupied all that country in there and that very, the most amazingly rich big game hunting place in the world, probably, uh, to, it still could be to this day is that Serengeti, uh, great grasslands of the Serengeti, which is just absolutely mind blowing to see that landscape with all those animals on it. And so that's probably where they used they used to reside in that country, right? And they got pushed by these pastoralists into more marginal area. Um, so the Hadza are one of these original hunter gatherers, and they're still hanging by a thread. You know, some of them some of them are pretty much settled and and kind of lost it. Others are still still making it to a to some degree that's falling apart rapidly because of the continued encroachment by the pastoralists.
Uh, what happened is more powerful herders had kicked out lesser powerful herders, and that feed, that process led to uh, uh, these other herders increasingly invading the Hadza country. So they basically share their country now with these farmers and these herders in sort of a cooperative way. Like it's not like a huge amount of conflict. They kind of like, they're kind of trying to make it all together. But what, one of the groups is, what is it? Oh my God. The Dakota, Dagada, something like Toga. Yes. Are they, what is, what is their relate? Cause that's the group they're closest to. Uh, right? There's Isanzu, Iraqi, Toga, Masai. What are those? What do those relationships look like, or does it vary depending on who they're interacting with? Like, is there a group they're they're like, oh yeah, we're good, we'll cooperate, but other groups say, oh, if we don't go over there, there will be conflict. I'm no expert like, on that all that because like? uh, I only witnessed uh, interaction with Datoga and some with Maasai. Uh, but the Datoga seem mm-hmm. to be pretty uh, well pacified to the Hadza and vice versa. But I know in the past there was more conflict. The Hadza are like totally passive they don't they don't they don't war they don't fight so so the, they avoid yeah, they run and hide from, don't they? they run like, and hide from conflict so uh they the, the in the past there was the totogo were more ruthless to them but it's kind of settled out and they're just trying to they're kind of trying to make it together in this area okay. and, and, and it seems to be like i can't speak for the whole situation but from my observation it was pretty chill but that that doesn't mean that the impacts of the Datoga though are not horrific to the ecology and the Hadza's way of life right that's the thing the 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 property owning uh uh, ethos you know of like and and just the cattle herding sort of thing that sedentary cattle herding thing you know and all the all the ecological impacts of that are destroying the Hadza and and uh, even if they're friendly with the Datoga, they're slowly being annihilated by the Datoga, right? And then one one angle to that is, you know, you get all this like human rights stuff where it's like, oh, but the Datoga need a place to go to, and you know, it's like, and how do you balance that? Like, oh, they, just my understanding where they live, I don't know the Datoga's larger range, but the Hadza, I mean, they're in the margins. I mean, same with the San, most contemporary. Um, hunter gatherers, they're not living, well, they should say in Africa at least, um, they're not living in their ancestral, like, you know, ecological, yeah. you know, vibrancy. There's a, a word I'm blanking on here you and I talked about recently, but, uh, you know, they're, they, they're living I mean, the, the Kalahari right? or Lake Yossi for the Son and the Hads are still, I've, you know, ancestral, in very important ancestral regions, like they're. They're 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 in very important areas, but yeah, they're they're deserty, more marginalized areas, and it's not where, when you're stuck in you're stuck in those areas. It's not where you'd actually want to be all the time, uh, but there's no ability to go anywhere else. Right, mosaic is the word I was looking for. A diverse ecology is what I was trying yeah, to look for earlier. And, so that's why they've made it because they've been able to get to these areas that no one else wanted to be in, you know. But th- that's that's slowly ending right. because, you know. Uh, Again, like, there's more powerful people, probably Maasai, pushed the toga down into Hadza country. I mean, that's been going on for a long time. But it's just gotten excessively worse and worse to the point where they're everywhere. You know, there's cows everywhere. Like, you're you're going along. Right. Didn't you say, didn't you say when you're on John's show, like, to get to their hunting grounds, they have to, like, move through herds of cattle. Because, of course, if they attack the cattle for food, that's war. Because now they're attacking the resources. Of that ended group, like right? a long time ago like at first yeah they 
In fact, the San got, that's why the San, the Mantus wanted to kill all the San, because when they first showed up, the San were like, oh, nice, uh, I'm gonna, this is a new source of food. And then that quickly, <laughs> but yeah, that we're talking, that's, they've stopped going, they know better than to shoot cows or goats or anything. They've known that for probably a thousand years or more. Uh, they know better than that because it just then they get they'll get hunted down by the by the pastoralists you know um like in fact i made a joke once i was with some hadza boys uh that we were we were hunting and uh there was a goat by itself like in the forest and i was like i made the motion with my the bow uh, like you know that drew back the bow and, and kind of looked at him and laughed and then the hadza kids were like no 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 don't do it <laughs> you know like they know better right um yeah that's if if i learned anything from that experience there what i learned a lot more in depth about was this dynamic with the agriculturalists and that history and just how how horrid it is just basically the really the deeper level awareness of why african hunter-gatherers are so screwed and you could like there was this article i read mm -hmm. saying stop referring to a pre-colonial africa um which was from this African scholar. And the point was making the point that there was all these complex uh, hierarchical chieftainships and, and uh, you know, sophisticated African societies, supposedly, uh, way before Europeans ever showed up to Africa, right? And, and you basically, what you're learning is right, there is that, right. uh, th of course, European colonialism and then globalization is, is a major factor in that in these hunt the decimation of these hunter gatherers but it begins with us pastoralists raiding uh raiding all of southern africa and uh and uh that's that starts the process and uh those people those that that um agricultural politics still don that's the dominant politic across africa right uh and uh, those people tend to have the the elite chieftains and all that are the ones who end up being the the, the people who run the show there and, and they don't care about hunter gatherers. They only care about uh, how they're going to get more money out of Africa. Right. Yeah. And so can I, I'm really curious about this uh, and then we can, and then we can move on the interpersonal relationships that you saw between the Hadza, obviously you don't speak their language. Um, but what is, what did the relationships like day to day? I mean, what did that look yeah, like? Yeah. By the way, on the language to sit there in the camp and listen to the click language is just absolutely gorgeous oh just phenomenal sit there by the fire right. and listen to him talk and, and eat some meat with them and stuff like really something um it's mm -hmm. such a beautiful language and uh like uh one thing yeah like the herders look down on them they they accuse them of being they they refer to them as like nothing but baboons and that their click language is basically nothing it's like such an unsophisticated weird language it's like animals talking and birds chirping and stuff and i'm mm -hmm. like I'd rather hear that, you know. I'd rather be a baboon than one of you, you know. But uh, uh, right. But again, you're seeing it right before your eyes. You're seeing actual egalitarian social interactions, like full scale, and you're seeing like no one's in charge. And I mean, there's some elder, elder male, and then there's more like the middle-aged male who they say is the leader. Like you know, the guy is super mellow, and they're not arguing. He's not. He's not like barking around orders. He's just kind of who they refer to because he's kind of like that age he's the most experienced hunter that's not like an elder you're like deferring a little bit to him I, to his experience you can cut you could kind of see that in a way like well you're out hunting or whatever but it's mm -hmm. like you know the, you you can't see how it would erupt into a conflict like 
And so, uh, but yeah, it's just full sharing. Like no one's like they take the epeme meat, epeme meat, like the special parts, and they give that to uh, the those men, and then uh, especially the elder male there. And I think the elder female gets some of that meat. Um, so they share, they distribute mm-hmm. the meat in that way. But other than that, it's just it's a total free for all when the meat comes back. And there is there's a gender division though. Um, that social interaction is mm-hmm. for real. Like uh, the women and the and the smallest children will, and the, will end up in this one camp zone, like one side of the camp, doing their own thing. And they obviously they get the the meat all gets distributed to everyone. Um, and but the women kind of tend to eat that and feed the babies off on their own. Um, and then the men have their own file. What is that? Is there like a social? Is there like the social stigma of the men and women associating, or like what is it? I think it's just been like that, you know, it's part of this, this, uh, gender division of labor thing where, uh, they, they kind of, I'm not saying they don't eat together, but they, they generally like during the day, especially they, they'll separate or kind of separate. And then at night when it's time to go to bed, then the, the men that have uh, children and wives, they go, they go sleep with their, in their camp with the, the camp with the, the each, each family has their own campfire. Uh, they all have their own little fire and their own little shelter. So they kind of have these little nuclear households. And so at night when it's time to retire, then those men, they go sleep with their spouse and and their children. Yeah. Are these matrilocal bands, by the way? Is that how they, are they patrilocal or matrilocal? Yeah, uh, I don't want to quote for the Hods a hundred percent because I, I don't want to say I know that exact answer, but generally it's been said that most that generally African hunter gatherers, immediate return hunter gatherers, usually are matrilocal. They follow a matrilocal matrilocality. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there's the thing is because they're so egalitarian and so free flowing that it's not like a this strict rule where if you didn't uh, go to didn't go right. to live with the wife's family, then you're going to be like hunted down and killed. Right? That's like more what complex hunter gatherers would do. <laughs> Like if you don't follow the exact, it's not as uh, it's not as stigmatized, right? It's not like a it's not a stigma. It's more of just yeah. I think it ends up in African gatherers. It ends up being more diverse. Like it doesn't always have to go that way, but generally it's matrilocal. In fact, I remember hearing about some studies that were done on it, like genetic studies that showed that uh, that it was true, like um, among pygmy populations. But that also. Uh, one thing that happened was was that the the mitochondrial DNA tended to be very localized in these matrilocal areas, where essentially the women uh, the women were staying with their with their their uh, mother's side, their their parents' side of their families all the time, like in those bands. But the the male DNA ended up being more dispersed, which that showed was that the males were sleeping around and like uh, not necessarily staying matrilocal. And then what did decision-making look like? I'm really curious about this. What is the decision-making? Um, what is the relationship between people when it comes to, hey, here's what we're going to do? I can't tell exactly. The, I couldn't tell exact dynamics because I think they're making decisions behind the scenes without us seeing. Plus, you can't, oh, since God. you don't know the language, you can't really tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there might be some like discussions amongst those men uh, and maybe even some of the women like, there's there was an elder female and like uh this one elder male uh uh they might be making having discussions about like the foreigners who are in our camp like and what to do about it like without us knowing so of course they probably are um 
But mm-hmm. you can see those decisions, like just for example, being out hunting, you're with like a diverse age group of men and uh, uh, some like they just kind of free free for all it like they're they know the land so well and they know what they're doing like some like a maybe two or three of them will just take off on their own and no one says anything there's no like okay you go here we'll go there it just kind of free flows out and like like when i was with them hunting it's like oh which who should i follow you know who and i was like i should follow the ones who are probably gonna have the best chance of killing something so i can like be part of it and see it and but then yeah you like i did that once i was like oh i'm following this guy this guy's like the badass hunter he's gonna kill it and then i went with him on this huge long journey and then uh we were like running i was trying to keep up with him and then he just stopped and he was like he just motioned at me go back this way you know like let's go back and i was like whoa what happened i thought he was like on the warpath you know and then he just turned around and left and went back the way we came and just slowly walked back well somehow he knew that the other group had made the kill and I don't know how he knows that, know. but he knew the other group had made the kill, and we just went back to the other spot where we where we had separated and waited for them there. And then they all stormed up. So it's like a like a hunting part. So like the hunting party leaves the camp, a small group of men, and then that group kind of breaks up essentially. Yeah, but to it go didn't do seem it. that organized. It was just like yeah, whatever. Like just it was inform- It's kind of informal. And then they know they're so in tune. Like they just they meet back up at the same spot. They like he knew he knew they killed something. Somehow he knew. I don't know. If- I know Zerzan. This is. I know Zerzan has this controversial idea among some, even primitivists. It's like you know, there is some type of, for lack of a better word, like a telepathic thing going on that you, or like a sixth sense that you kind of just pick up on. Some oh yeah, stuff. There's- particularly the because they're born yeah. and raised in this. They don't know. They don't have anything alienating them at all from both each other or the natural world. And they're so smart. Like you can just see it. These are like I said, optimal fitness. They're just. They're super intelligent. Their senses are so aware and they're like masters of the stuff they do. And it's all very simple. It's simple technology, but they're master. Like watching them, their ability to make arrows like so straight and just so craftily and do it so quick. Like they like, and just anything like that, you know, they're just, they're really... I mean, they do the poison arrows. Is it the Hadza that do the poison arrows? Yeah, they do poison arrows and they do, uh, but they, their quivers have a set of arrows for like all the different things that that's the most effective for all the different stuff. Right. They specialize the arrows, right. For like what they're hunting. Yep. I'll show you sometime. If I ever see you, I I have a whole quiver of Hadza arrows that I brought back. That's awesome. So in terms of the poisoning, I'm sorry. Now I'm just super into this. Uh, The, in terms of poisoning, I mean, this is like a science, like they're so, because you can't do too much. You can't do too little. Right. Like it's like, they just know how much to do, right? I mean, it's like precise for them. Yeah, totally. Yep. And so, I mean, that shit's so cool. I don't, I didn't get, I did not witness them applying the poison. That's one thing I didn't get. I saw a lot of the legendary things having to do with, with these people, but I did not see them applying the poison. However, uh, I saw the poison arrows and I actually have one in my possession now. They wrap the poison arrow up with a strip of rawhide that they to protect it so no one gets stabbed by it. Okay. And I, and then another curiosity I have is, you know, people, when they find that the Hadza and the sound, they eat monkeys or even, you know, baboons or whatever. It's like, I think the common, you know, the over-socialized domesticated person say, oh, well, we're told like they're endangered. They're so similar to us. And that's true. Like, I get, I'm not saying let's go all and hunt monkeys or whatever. Did you have, did any anything they're eating like unnerve you? You're like, ah... Uh... 
I don't know. I uh, I've never been that interested in eating brains, and uh, <laughs> uh, I and I had to, I had tried brains one time before, but uh, this time you know I I went full on into brains. How was that? It's good. It's like butter. It tastes like butter. <laughs> it's really high level of nutrition. Oh. Are you gonna Are you gonna put it on your Are you gonna put it on your toast? <laughs> you could, you know. I mean, I do that with the uh, bone marrow. I I, uh, mm-hmm. I take raw bone marrow and put. I put that on all my like a lot of my dried fish and stuff, and that's like such a great way to eat eat dried meat is is with fresh raw bone marrow on it. So, um, mm, anyways, uh, cool. now we're getting into the diet topic. But uh, I I've spent time with several hunter gatherers and stuff, so I'm used to it. Um, some people might be freaking out more. Um, I mean, I've eaten different well, crazy stuff around the world, um, so but so it wasn't a big deal. Uh, 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 definitely seeing the the baboons getting killed and uh look you know seeing a you know sort of a, a prime like an actual like human looking primate being skinned and stuff is pretty intense um i watched a baboon like get an arrow in it and it was just like kind of like the uh, 18th or 19th century like wild west kind of stuff like like old west films you know what i mean where like someone gets someone gets an arrow in them and they're trying to pull it out of their body. That was what the baboon was trying to do, like a person pull the arrow out, and that was pretty intense. Um, right, uh, I'm sure. Like just to see that humanness in that in that animal, like trying to and knowing that they were pinned with an arrow trying to get it out. So that's some very real stuff mm-hmm. to deal with, right? Like I'm sure the vegans don't want to hear this, but uh, these are things we all need to control. <laughs> so, in your opinion. Uh, doing your life with the Hadza and other indigenous indigenous hunter gatherer groups, or living on your own, you know, on your own property, basically in a cabin, right? Kind of doing your own hunter gatherer shit on on your solo. What, in your opinion, are the greatest misconceptions about primitive living, either from primitivists or from non-primitivists? Oh yeah, well, Kaczynski was onto it, or less, when he when he said, mm-hmm. "Look, hunter gatherer life's not a bunch of hippies dancing around the." or a bunch of flower children dancing around the fire circle or whatever, you know, cause Dinsky said in that one thing he wrote, what do you think? Put, throw berries in your mouth and sleep around the tree. Yeah, I mean, this is the main misconception and I've had to get into this with, with people that are, that I respect, you know, go ahead, try it, you know, and see, uh, see how easy it is. See this whole thing of it not being a lot of work and stuff. Sure. When you, when you've grown into that, when you're born into it, like the, like the Hadza or whatever, it's ba- it's basic. It's a it's you're so adapted to it. It's a basic day to day, and and they do have a fairly relaxed way of life. But you are you're putting in you're putting in your work every day, and and you're living um, in the elements, and um, so uh, there's one side of it that yeah, life is easier. It's definitely more free. It's it's certainly more personally liberating, but it's um it is serious physical work and there's a lot of physical discomfort and a lot of there's a lot of times when you feel very vulnerable and afraid um and you're uh also especially when we're trying to do this uh from our context like we're starting from scratch from the ground up and we don't have community we don't have viable help you know um a lot of people are waiting around to find the right community to go try rewilding or whatever. And then they're not going to do anything because it's so hard to find the right community. So in a way it's like a thousand times harder for Mm -hmm. one of us to do any of this because we're 
going it alone or just with a couple people or right so the thing is if you're going to try to get into it personally you're you need to prepare yourself to suffer and put in some serious dirt time and and work and i mean physically work and uh uh you're not working as an employee you know no one's bossing you around but you're you're going to be you're going to have some days are chill some days are going to be 18 hour days of non-stop like go 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 how much of that can i ask how much of that is because you know obviously it's we're learning it we're not raised right we're not raised in it or rather you're not raised in it but is it be, how much of that or you know, the 18 hour days how different would that be if you had a group with you that's four or five people way better every time you have community especially like-minded folks then it all just gets better um, but my experience is right. it's so hard to find reliable people or, you know, so many people of uh, those of us who are into this whole thing, uh, we all have our own other separate lives and we, you know, people are like have jobs and, you know, they're into all this and they want to put time to it, but they just, you can't hundred percent immerse in it because of all these, all this civilized baggage. So it's just hard to find that sort of reliable scenario where you always have that, that group level of effort, um, so, but yeah, it gets way easier. I mean, like, for example, uh, just one, one example, like direct from the field. Uh, if, if I kill a moose, uh, I'm looking at like 1500 to 2000 pounds of, of, of carrying, you know, um, uh, mm -hmm. just dealing with all that. Cause you, I mean, no matter where you're taking it, you want to get it, get it away from the kill site. Uh, so, uh, Let's just say that that's, I just, let's say I have to go two miles to get to camp and get that meat stabilized and hung up, right? So like, let's call it, uh, let's just, let's just call it a thousand pounds, right? So let's say 10 pounds at a hundred pounds each, right? Or t 10, 10 loads at a hundred pounds each, okay? So as you, by yourself, if you're doing 10 pounds or 10 loads, two miles one way double that right so uh that's four miles one way that's 40 miles uh 20 of those miles you're carrying 100 pounds on your back by yourself right mm -hmm. every yeah. time you have another help you reduce that get it so if i kill the moose mm -hmm. i want five people and plus, it's such a big animal. You want to be able to share that. You want to experience that actual communal sharing when you kill a big animal like that. You know, that's what that's how you want to be living. In fact, one time I, I killed a moose with a longbow uh, by myself. And I, that was supposed to be mm -hmm. the greatest achievement. But I actually got depressed. Why? Because I didn't have any community to, like, share and experience that with. It mm -hmm. wasn't even – the work was hard, but it was, like, to not have the social life that actually you're right to distribute that meat out to like like-minded radical friends you know and share that uh but yeah so mm -hmm. that just gives you an example of some of the work this is actual big game hunting right uh but I, we can get into all that too and talk about diet whatever like if we, the mechanism of our evolution uh was prominently big game hunting and when I say that, it's physical, social, mental, mm -hmm. uh, spiritual, the whole package. So really achieve to get to the level that we should be trying to get to, we should we need to experience and embrace big game hunting, not just like foraging around for little odds and ends. 
the package big game hunting provides the most powerful package right. of like rewilding that there is possible in my opinion so that yeah. that requires the most work at that uh process anyways i i could go on there's a lot of details there but mm-hmm. yeah yeah let me ask let me ask you this then because you, you said the misconception of course is like it's the flower children easy work right um but i'm curious you're so we've talked about it one-on-one plenty of times uh the vegans particularly the the vegan primitivists who of course uh they posit much like you and i posit the only way to be an anarchist is to be a primitivist or something similar i don't like to police i'm trying not to be the ideologue right but uh, the i remember i was doing an episode a couple months ago now with the people from warzone the vegan nihilists and uh flower bomb said the only way to be an anarchist is you got to be vegan and i remember i called you after that and i told you that because i knew it would piss you off and you said no the only way to be a <laughs> to be an anarchist is to eat meat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll stand by that um, because being able to get to to hunt and and, and for uh, get roadkill, scavenge for roadkill is is absolutely the most free way, free way to to, to obtain like optimal mm-hmm. human nutrition. You know, so that's it's the one way to not to not be generating hierarchy, in my opinion. But what's their answer? You know, I don't I don't get it. Like what what. How do they propose that veganism is the most anarchist diet? Like, what? Let's let's trace back the source of what they're eating every day to to um to how it originates and what process it goes through, get it to, into their mouths, and then explain to me how it's mm-hmm. anarchist. You know, like as far as I understand it, there's no indigenous ve- vegetarian or vegan society. Period, unless unless it's like has deep roots in agriculture, right? So show explain to me how that's going to work mm-hmm. and how you're going to be a vegan uh and not be dependent on some sort sort of hierarchy or if it's not hierarchy of uh of some other uh human entity uh how are you going to do that without creating like pretty serious ecological hierarchy what what environment allows you to do that so you mm-hmm. i mean i've thought about this you 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 need to go to like tropical subtropical and you need to become a forest gardener and live on tropical only on tropical f- fruit and produce yep. it's about the only way it's right oh i will i mean i remember what uh what flower bomb said and this is no way me attempting to t- attack flower bomb and i would love in the future to facilitate discussion between you and maybe ria del montana just you and you and her one-on-one to talk about this but i remember i know ria's expressed something similar but this is Flowerbomb speaking on Rhea's behalf, is, well, there's no evidence because they wouldn't leave any, right? They don't need the tools, even though we're pretty sure early tool use would have been used for um, harvesting or processing um, plant, like, to, uh, uh, plant plant substances. Um, so that doesn't really work. Um, but, like, this idea, well, they're not wearing skins, they're not leaving animal or bone, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, but, like, a lack of evidence is not evidence. You know, that doesn't hold up to me. Yeah, it's just, it's just like uh, what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was just at Old Divide Gorge at uh, Zinge Level One, which is Leakey's uh, famous Australopithecine find. With uh, that was famous because it showed that Australopithecines were were using stone tools to cut meat and fat off of bone. And I, I sat there in the site, and I and then I was also able to look at some of the bones, 
uh, that had the stone tool cut marks that Leakey found. So that's, I believe, at 3.2 million. Um, mm -hmm. That's evidence. That's not evidence for veganism. Um, right. So you can look all that up and see that and how that's all interpreted. That they believe that they were discovering that we evolved on animal food right there. That that's showing us that. I mean, this topic could go into so many avenues and down into the weeds. Uh, I say all the power to them. Um, I know uh, robusticity uh, and resilience involved with becoming a hunter. Uh, right. And uh, I know, I know for a fact that um, the hunting culture is the most anarchist culture. It, it has the capacity to build that. It's the least hierarchical of all. And um, even when it comes to dominating other other beings, it's it's the least hierarchical. Um, show me a vegan system that that somehow is not as hierarchical, or or somehow isn't. I just don't get it. I I want to see the evidence, see them prove it. My thing that I, I call them uh, uh, anarcho primitivists, not anarcho primitivists. <laughs> They're essentially, right. because the evidence that you're saying that there's absence of evidence or whatever, well, you can find that. Just go look in a primate, any uh, paleo, paleontological uh, primate site, and then you'll find the the, the primates, uh, the proto-sapiens or whatever, that, that, aren't, that are vegan. And even then, they're not. Even then, all those species eat uh, insects and, in fact, chimpanzees, bonobos, uh, Gorillas, they all do some level of hunting too, right? In fact, chimpanzees, yeah. which were the closest related to, they all hunt. They 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 hunt and uh, fight for the meat that they get. They'll they'll go after smaller monkeys and kill them and eat them, and they 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 relish that food. Mm -hmm. Um, I w I went from being militant vegan, just so it's clear. Uh, I was ideological about that for years. Yeah, did that come with? Did that come with the hardcore scene you talked about earlier, uh, several hours ago? Now it started with me uh, actually before I even got into hardcore. I was just into like punk. Okay. I was into like subhumans and conflict and stuff and 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 crass, you know, which was promoting vegetarianism when I was like twelve years old. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, and then and then from there, uh, yeah, then all the whole vegan straight edge stuff blew up, and I got way into all that. So of course, yeah, I was militant vegan. I was I was super into it. And I tried my best to do it, but it was actually, like I said, when I started squatting the Forest Service land, and I was still vegan at the time, and, and, and I was sitting there going, like, so I was starting to grasp a lot of this, like the idea of bioregionalism, right? Which I thought was a, a really important idea, that bioregionalism is like living within the means of your own bioregion. So then I was sitting there thinking, how, if I was vegan how would i make it here in this uh in the sierra nevada mountains mm -hmm. i was living at the time and then i started realizing you couldn't you know you'd have to learn to hunt mm -hmm. um and then at that point i started thinking maybe i'm gonna try to eat some meat and uh and and i have a family member who's a who was a hunter that i used to argue with all the time and i actually ended up visiting them and uh they had made elk burgers and i said all right i'm doing it mm. yeah and then i did it i did it and it was a big deal i was freaked out i was sure. really freaked out 
because I it would be I think I had been strong strictly vegan for six years and then vegetarian before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right when I ate it, I knew it was meant to be. Right. I said, "What the hell were you doing?" And I, right from there, I told myself, "I'm going to teach myself how to hunt." So, if you remember uh, Kevin in Species Trader, there was an article that was so good. Way back, it was like the title was uh, from. From militant vegan to primitive bow hunter. That, mm-hmm. I read that article in Species Trader. I was getting into green anarchy and all this stuff. It was all influencing me on this. And then I was like, I'm gonna teach myself how to hunt. And uh mm-hmm. and I did. I, I it took me a few years to figure it out. But uh and I, I was militant then too. I said, I'm only gonna learn to do it with primitive weapons. I won't use a gun. And I did, I pulled that off. I, I, uh, it took me a while, but I got, I got my first deer with my own, uh, handmade bow. And you, you engage in persistence hunting, don't you? Out where you live? No, not really, but well, that, that's a whole deep topic, but, um, I've tried to, uh, learn to chase down animals to, in that way to make them pant to where they'll stop running. And I've been able to pull that off. Uh, I never actually killed mm. one in that way. But it's not your it's not your it's not your first choice of of hunting. Uh it's a pretty good choice. It's from I mean I, we were doing that with a hot side. We were running they, they run like right. crazy. They run after oh, stuff. Oh I know they do. It's insane. Yeah. Well that reminds me, oh my god, I meant to say this earlier is this dude, I can't remember his name. I don't watch Joe Rogan, but I saw this clip. He was this guy was on Joe Rogan's show and he he was talking about his time in the Hadza. He's like, you know, you should come back and like be like Olympic athletes and why don't you come to America with me in the Hadza were like America isn't that where people jump off roofs <laughs> that's the problem with these people they're just they want to like have no clue what they're what they're doing you know what they're up what like the seriousness of the situation when they go see the Hadza you know like, these mm-hmm. people shouldn't be, I mean not to be authoritarian but it's like they shouldn't they should be banned from going there it's like this like stuff they're that they try to do it's just like you're it's so destructive you know like they just think oh yeah i'm gonna bring him to america it'll be awesome like here you know check out my smartphone what a disaster i've heard about this guy on joe rogan talking about the hadza and i've heard i didn't know the whole story i haven't listened to it but someone told me that this guy has no business being with the hadza david i don't know his last name it's david uh cho or something like c-h-o-e i always forget how to say his last name he, he i know him because he was big into like train hopping way back in the fucking in the day and i saw some old videos without realizing it was the same dude I realize what, uh, what they're doing like every little thing you do i mean even right. just me showing up there too is like i admit it you know it's sketchy so sketchy every little influence mm-hmm. you bring means closer to them right losing it like I've seen it happen. Like uh, my field work that I was doing with uh, with hunter gatherers in Alaska, I started that when yeah there was internet, but there was no smartphones. And I watched mm. through that time. I watched smartphones come to the villages, and I watched how that changed the people there. Not just the kids, but all all the people who got into it. And I watched how that changed their orientation to the world, and specifically, I actually. Uh, wild food hunting gathering and they're right. like everything navigation i mean this is nothing to mess with you know and so these people that want to go like just play around with the hadza like so sketchy i mean in a way it's like genocidal 
Right. I mean, you're just treating them as a, as a, as a commodity, right? That's right. Yeah, it's this voyeuristic commodity economy. Yeah, and it gets into the whole ecotourism thing, but that's a whole other long-winded just conversation. Just briefly on that, just because it is important that um, they are, they're up against a wall and, and they do know about money and they do, that's probably not going away. They, they, my argument right now, though, is like a proper ecotourism could be one of the better things for them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be writing about that. Um, that's a really sketchy thing to say. We need the the whole entire African tourism industry needs to end. Actually, <laughs> okay, um, that would be the first step for right. fixing things. That's a that's a completely corrupt entity in itself. Like all these like multi tens of thousands of dollars safari tourists getting trucked around, flying in on big jets, and I I mean I just saw all that and i like i mean i was there doing it too so i mean in terms of going to the hadza so i'm not saying i'm innocent but um uh if there's going to be foreigners with money going there um or willing to contribute to trying to help save the hadza uh it could very well be that that type of program might be the most one with least impact but it needs to it would need to be like a carefully vetted program for people who do go interact there like just normal yahoos with a bunch of money you know that's really dangerous so jamie i guess one of the last things i wanted to ask you is you're obviously very well read and you're referring to a lot of different studies and and texts so do you want to give us an insight to some of your reading recommendations or texts that you think to be most important for the rewilding or anarcho-primitivist critique yeah i'll try to give some recommendations so people can dig deep into some of this stuff you know, I constantly have people asking for a book list, and one thing I've come to realize is is that most of all the information that I utilize and put put together academic articles much more than it does from books. So that's one thing about all this is that if people really want to read and understand some of this, they can't dodge the reality of having to dig into the academic record. In respect to anthropology and hunter-gatherer studies, that's part of the problem with so many of the people who want to argue against anarcho-primitivism is that they haven't really read the literature that effectively proves, generally, the anarcho-primitivist thesis. And the academic literature, as far as I see it, proves it, hands down. Um, So I challenge people to dig into that stuff and then get back to us to say that we're wrong um i'd like to see them prove that the general anarcho-primitivist thesis isn't accurate after they've taken it upon themselves to go through all the massive amount of anthropological writing that they could go through but it generally isn't in books some of it's in books but you'll never get the whole picture just by reading books anyways but i'll try to mention a couple books uh one of them would be uh us Relatives, Scaling and Plural Life in a Forger World. That's by Nareet Bird-David, who's a long-time hunter-gatherer studies anthropologist. Uh, it's one of the books that I read that I had said, this is a mandatory book for all anarchists to read. And then any of Nareet's journal articles that she's written, like The Giving Environment, um, Sociality and Immediacy, things like that from Nareet Bird-David. Another really important author in anthropology that I think does an excellent job at backing up the anti-civ anarcho-primitivist thesis 
is John Bodley, and he's a retired professor from University of Washington. He has several books, Anthropology and Contemporary Human Problems. This is like a textbook for anthropology students in college, but go ahead and have a look at that. It's very well done and basically provides the, the story that anthropology provides us on why civilization is such a problem. John Bodley also wrote The Power of Scale, A Global History Approach, quite an important book. And then he also wrote Victims of Progress, among other things. Christopher Bohm's work, really vital, Hierarchy in the Forest, The Evolution of Egalitarian Behavior. If you're interested in trying to understand how we likely evolved as anarchists or egalitarians, that we speciated under that politic, then you should read Christopher Bohm's stuff. And he also has some some articles, Egalitarian Behavior and Reverse Dominance Hierarchy, Forager Hierarchies, Innate Dispositions, and the Behavioral Reconstruction of History, stuff like that that can get to some of the other aspects of hierarchy in hunter-gatherers. Out of curiosity, if I can ask, what have you read Society Against the State by Lastress? If I'm yeah, pronouncing I've read that. right. It's been a long time. Is that... Is that a book you would recommend? Because I read that earlier this year for the first time, and I, I was—I thought it was really great. And some of it went over my head because I don't know his fuller concepts he's writing in. But I was—I was pretty happy with that text. Is that one that, as a as a book length work, would you recommend something Absolutely. like that for me? Uh, might be kind of a precursor to James C. Scott's *The Art of Being Ungoverned*. You know, um, Clastres is self-identified anarchist and putting forward that basic thesis of that that these small-scale indigenous groups are actually purposefully, with their agency, creating a lifeway that goes against dominant culture. And I think we talked a lot about that in the interview. Um, but yeah, Clastris, that would be one for sure that people should look at. Another old anthropology book that has a lot to offer is Timothy Earle, How Chiefs Come to Power. Another one anarchists should read. They want to understand some of the dynamics that create hierarchy. And then to interrupt again, what about uh, we reference cultural materialism quite a bit or, you know, materialist analysis. What about the works of Marvin Harris? Do any of his works come to mind that you would recommend as kind of like cultural materialism 101? Yeah, just well, you can read the, the, the Marvin Harris Bible, you know, cultural materialism, a struggle for the science of culture. Think of the title there, you know, he's trying to set down materialism as the science of culture. The thing that you can look at as a, as a metric to understand how things generally evolve under certain material conditions. And um, that's a really important book. And, and he it's a, it's a long, winding read, but he spends a lot of time, too, you know, going after the sort of postmodernist type people and really uh, hammering on them. Marvin Harris was would get in their faces, you know. He he was known for that, and he he would have uh, he would have had a field day with 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 uh, Graeber and Wingro, that's for sure, if he was still alive. And then, out of curiosity, again, do you have any works that might pertain to misconceptions about history, particularly? You know, we've talked about it before, uh, veganism, primitivism, and and those connecting issues. Are there works that pertain to like the importance of protein, particularly from animal meat, uh, that you would recommend? Yeah, the most recent stuff I've been getting into is uh, Nikki Bendorf uh, from University of Tel Aviv. 
This is pretty mind blowing stuff. Hard to hard to argue with when you when you look at how he lays that out. There's particularly the article "Man, the Fat Hunter," and some of his other articles makes it very difficult to argue that uh, we have any business trying to become vegetarian or vegan, let alone that that uh, we even should be worried about obtaining agriculturally derived plant food at all. In fact, he makes a really good case for the idea we should just dump all of it and uh, really focus on healthy animal foods. And one thing that's important there on that topic, that his his work doesn't necessarily emphasize, but you can you can read that in between the lines, is that you know when when you take that on, it's immensely liberating. Um, you you can eliminate uh, your dependency on the industrial food system to massive degrees uh, if you rely uh, just on say uh, grass-fed, free-ranging animals, uh, hunting, foraging, roadkill, uh, wild fish, things like that, and you you can adapt your body to just surviving on those things. To me, that is the most anarchist diet. That's the least hierarchical diet. And the and the vegan thing, if if it's dependent on any sort of industrially derived or shipped nutritional elements, then it's complete hierarchy. So when you had your one guest claiming that you can't be an anarchist unless you're vegan, I mean, it's quite ludicrous because that whole food system is basically hierarchy and, and it's thousands of years of hierarchy and domination and and conquest of, of wild, free animal species and ecologies and, being, and uh, human beings. And then maybe alternatively, instead of books uh, that you would recommend, but are there books or works that are coming out or have been out that you would say, you know, I don't want to say avoid because I think people should engage with texts they don't agree with. But are there texts that are out that you think will mislead people about the nature of prehistory and forging? Well, so many of those, these big uh, popular long form books that come out do that in certain ways. They, a lot of them have something to offer. You know, you can always pick apart these big books and find really good things in there that are really useful or accurate but then they always tend to have these other stuff that goes way out there and you know like one thing uh, is they always tend to have these really timid sort of liberal conclusions you know they never really say what really needs to be said even when the most of the book will say something really vital uh uh one that comes to mind that's like that uh civilized to death by christopher for ryan that's a that's really well done and he really pieced together a lot of anthrop- important anthropology on in there and, and made, made the really strong arguments. And it's easy to read, but then, yeah, it ends with this, like, yeah, the solution is that, like, you know, the hunter-gatherer community is, is social media, you know, just ludicrous. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I mean, even even Dawn of Everything, which, which is all the hype, of course, there's really important things that, are said in that book that, that are totally valid. And I, uh, I'm actually working on writing a full critique of, of Dawn of everything of breaking the whole thing down. And, and the title of that's going to be anarchy after Graber. And that'll be the, the next book that I'm putting out after I finish the one that's I'm putting out now called rewilding in the 21st century. Uh, but I have in that book, I have a whole chapter discussing the really positive contributions that Graeber and Wingrow made. Um, so it's not like uh, 
don't read that book at all. There's important things. One one thing one thing that they do that's really good is that they actually don't hold back on discussing uh, indigenous and hunter gatherer diversity. They don't pull the the super PC uh, you know woke card and try to uh, throw under the rug all of the negative things about certain uh, indigenous ways of life or indigenous uh, activities over history. And they definitely um, are open about uh, uh, some of the pathologies of specific hunter-gatherers. That's really well done that they did that. And a, a lot of anthropologists have shied away from that kind of thing, especially in a long-form book. So I appreciate that they did that. And there's other things that they did good, too. Another book like that, that just that's really recent, is called uh, Back to the Stone Age, uh, Race and Prehistory and Contemporary Culture by Ben Pitcher, who's an English uh, sociologist. Now, this is a full-scale sort of postmodernist critical race theory attack on interest in prehistory at all. If you're interested in hearing that kind of argument, go ahead and check that out. I find most of it laughable. Uh, Even the basic thesis ends up being, if if you're interested in prehistory and you want to talk about things that have to do with, with not just hunter-gatherers, but just prehistory at all, then, you know, really, uh, you you probably are a racist, and you might be a fascist, and you're probably a right-winger, and stuff like that. So that's that whole, he, that this picture book is representative of that whole movement that's kind of arising uh, in the sort of woke academia, anthropology, sociology now, where I think you know, in the podcast, we've we previously talked about it, but where, you know, these people are starting to be really threatened by, by the fact that so many people are getting into prehistorical information and potentially, you know, dumping their faith that, that the problems of civilization are going to get solved by, by liberal politics and leftist politics. So then what's their reaction? It's, it's, we have to find a way to attack these people, call them racist, and so on, um, we gotta cancel them. So that's kind of that's kind of what's happening. Uh, an important book that I think people should read fully through. It's it's like over a thousand pages if you have time. But uh, I believe that that this book as a whole also proves the anti-civilization, anarcho-primitivist thesis largely, and that's the Oxford Handbook of the Archaeology and Anthropology of Hunter-Gatherers, the one that came out in 2014. That book has numerous chapters that, if you sift through that, you'll, you'll see what I mean, where the points that are made really help strongly bolster the anti civ thesis. Not all the chapters, but a lot of them have that. And then are there texts that are for you simply, even if they're ones that, you know, aren't ones you recommend, maybe because they're really dense or they're not as relevant to the things we've been talking about. But do you have texts that for you are just foundational, whether they're necessarily anthropology or not? Do certain books, maybe they're anarchist theory. I know you, you, you're not as the theory that. You're not in so much into the political theory as you are to the anthropology, but do any of those books have any uh, importance to you? Uh, there's one book that I could mention that's uh, kind of like that. Um, 
it's a really wonderful read. It's really easy to read. It's it's a page turner. It's not something I just recommend to people who really want to dig down deep into these issues. But uh, we have an Alaska author here called Seth Kantner who was born and raised uh, in a Saudi igloo and uh, writes a lot of really neat narratives about free life out on the land. There's a book called Ordinary Wolves, which was which is a really fun book to read. And then I guess we could say, you know, Paul Shepard's books, a lot of people know about those. Um, those are kind of dense reading, but they have a lot of important things, especially my favorite is the sacred, the, the tender carnivore and the sacred game, a classic that uh, has been cited a lot in the past, but is well worth checking out because of the history of this book is uh, Stanley Diamond's In Search of the Primitive, A Critique of Civilization from 1974. Stanley Diamond was a prominent anthropologist. I mean, I think he he got his PhD at Harvard or Yale or something, and and he he went off the reservation and and rebelled against the whole anthropology establishment and wrote this book in search of the primitive. And uh, you know, some of it's um, outdated, but you know, he was he went after the the establishment really heavily, especially anthropology itself. Well, that's a classic. There, another important work journal article from anthropology, evolutionary anthropology, uh, having to do with the role of anarchist egalitarian-like behaviors in human evolution is the stuff that uh, were written, was written by Erdahl and Whiten, uh, particularly egalitarianism and Machiavellian intelligence in human evolution, uh, which is a chapter in a book called The Early Human Mind. A really important anthropologist to pay attention to is... Uh, R. Brian Ferguson, and he's his specialization has been uh, indigenous warfare and proving the point to the naysayers that that specific indigenous people, particularly a bunch of the hunter gatherers, are not warlike, not violent, and he's done a really good job at discussing some of those things. Uh, there's a book that that he was an editor of called Warfare, Culture, and Environment. And a really important chapter in that book is called A Reexamination of the Causes of Northwest Coast Warfare, particularly getting to, okay, so why is it that these complex hunter-gatherers on the Northwest Coast, why are they warlike? Why are these other hunter-gatherers aren't? And then he wrote this really important uh, article that I highly recommend is read by anyone interested in these topics, which is called uh, Blood of Leviathan, Western Contact and Warfare in Amazonia. Uh, that's from 1990, an American ethnologist. Have a look at that and, and understand how uh, access and competition among the indigenous people for, for Western industrial goods instigates and initiates all sorts of hideous violence and war and and just overall trouble um and you know he doesn't shy away from 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 that it's not a politically correct article I meant that that you got a on the first episode of uh, my interview for for uncivilized podcast a person saying that uh you know we're trying to say that all hunter gatherers are primitive communists and that's this is just ridiculous. I'm not sure that person is really paying attention to, to what I've been saying. Um, we're absolutely not saying that. 
what's what's important is is to be able to look at various hunter gatherers and understand at that baseline base level of human organization why some of them end up creating hierarchy and why some of them don't so anarcho-primitivists should be promoting full acknowledgement and awareness of hunter-gatherer diversity the variability of different hunter-gatherer life ways in politics not lumping hunter-gatherers all in one category and i don't think there's in a single hunter-gatherer that you could call a communist um so that's the primitive communism idea you know that richard b lee used and stuff i mean that's old news that's is pointless at this t- at this time so that person needs to get with the program if they're going to make comments like that yeah i think when a lot of people say primitive communist i think that term's kind of taking on a different they kind of use a marxist sense of like commu- you know they don't mean communist in a top bottom and i don't know what the anthropological definition is but i think when a lot of primitivists or anarchist people use primitive communist they use this like marxist idea of like Maybe what we talk about, this egalitarianism, anarchism, this emphasis on sharing, and, dist- and I guess what I would say is spontaneous distribution, as opposed, when I say distribution, I think some people are going to have this idea of, like, a bureaucracy, you know what I mean, or this, like, rationalism of you get a quarter, you get a quarter, shit like that. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think using primitive communism uh, makes more confusion than clarification. Yeah, I think when I hear it, I think of centralized redistribution there's a reason why egalitarian became became the term not primitive communism you know egalitarian is the term that's used uh to describe what at that point they had tried to label as primitive communism egalitarianism is more free-flowing you know it's not this regimented thing and egalitarianism means equal but it uh like daniel bitten says in his podcast it means equality of decision making you know, everyone everyone ha- can make their own decisions and uh, it doesn't necessarily mean mater- total material equality the, the idea of i think i don't study all kinds of marxist stuff but you know i think that you know that they assumed total material equality and that some central force would redistribute that where you where you have that in hunter gatherers is in the complex hunter gatherers not not in the not in the the uh the small band immediate return hunter gatherers that really are the most anarchist so I just want that to be clear so people understand that that's not what what I'm saying, and I don't think that's really what most anarcho-primitivists have said. Uh, but on that note, on, on hunter-gatherer diversity, there's there's a book called uh, The Diversity of Hunter-Gatherer Pass that uh, Bill Finlayson did, and uh, that has a bunch of chapters that talk about this hunter-gatherer diversity. That that was pretty recent. Um, if for interest in a... In, uh, in uh, gender equality, have a look at Morna Finnegan's article, The Politics of Eros, Ritual, Di- Ritual Dialogue and Egalitarianism in Three Central African Hunter-Gatherer Societies. That's really great. Ben Fitzhugh focused pretty heavily uh, in the 2000s on complex hunter-gatherers, and uh, he has a book called The Evolution of Complex Hunter-Gatherers, Archaeological Evidence from the North Pacific, that would be something that people should look at if they want to understand where hunter-gatherers start to generate hierarchy. On Peter Gardner, who I mentioned, uh, he had an article in 1991 called Forager's Pursuit of Individual Autonomy. This is when he was really starting to 
to emphasize the, the individual autonomy of, of the small band hunter-gatherers. I believe that we uh, were already talking about John Gowdy, but that's really important uh, material. John Gowdy's book, Limited Once, Unlimited Means, that was a really important uh, anthology of hunter-gatherer studies. I believe that was like in the 80s. Uh, he wrote uh, the book that's out now called Ultra Social, which which I highly recommend people read that. That's an easy one to read. It's uh, quick and dirty and uh, makes vital points. Some of these texts are older. Is there a rule of thumb you have when you engage with older anthropological texts? Because maybe you're missing out on debate that comes after the text, or maybe the consensus or the view on that has shifted. If so, if people read a text, obviously people should always fact check and keep updated but is there kind of like a rule of thumb you apply like if anything's older than say like 2012 that's just a number i'm making up but like should you be more cautious about it or like what what did what is your suggestion about reading older anthropology yeah i mean of course stay on your toes with that but i mean how much time has actually went by i mean we're dealing with some basic facts of human existence and the sort of postmodern philosophical muddle fest is to like throw another question or another, uh, you know, angle to it. And, uh, well, they probably didn't have that right. But the, with, with, the, with the, the authors that I'm citing here, they're talking about basic reality, okay? And the things, I don't think that a lot of it is up for dispute or has, has changed that much. So I don't necessarily think that way because human life goes pretty quick and this this information is is relatively recent you know and and I, again i challenge anyone to prove that it's wrong go back to some of these older articles uh, like you know uh our brian ferguson blood of leviathan or something and then and then tell me uh okay uh he had that wrong no he's he's laying out basic material facts of how how situations evolve and and it blows me away that we have to keep researching it and keep writing about it and keep bantering on we understand the map to the maze we we know what's wrong here um let's stop getting all wishy-washy about it really marvin harris also wrote like some popular books that you know were being sold in mainstream bookstores and stuff back in the day so one of them and that's really fun to read is cannibals and kings and then there were some others that he wrote too Really important author, archaeologist, mostly has written um, articles, uh, is Brian Hayden out of Canada. And if you want to understand, really, the nuts and bolts of how hierarchy evolves and how it's maintained, and how these 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 narcissistic, emergent elite people uh, manipulate us to hold power over us, then you should read Brian Hayden, pretty much any of his stuff. It should be mandatory reading for most anarchists. There's a book that Price and Feynman wrote. Uh, they were the editors called Foundations of Social Inequality. Uh, Hayden wrote a chapter in there called Pathways to Power, Principles for Creating Socioeconomic Inequalities. His chap Brian Hayden's chapter in the uh, Oxford Handbook of Hunter-Gatherers called Social Complexity is a really important overview of understanding complex hunter-gatherers. He starts that chapter with a statement that, look, it wasn't the agricultural revolution that's the most important moment in human history. Uh, the most important moment in human history is the rise of complex stratified societies around 40,000 years ago. Uh, complex hunter-gatherers, that's what drove this evolution. 
Um, so getting back to, uh, you know, the comment that you got, sorry to tell you, but, uh, the real facts are, is that these mechanisms do drive these, these stage level evolutions. It's not always the case. Sure. Things can go off in different directions, but when you zoom out and look at the picture generally as a whole, the materialist, the materially identified mechanisms do drive these evolutions to, to civilization and the crisis that we're in now. There's no way around it. And I, I challenge that person to prove otherwise. Provide verifiable facts that that's not true. And by the way, Graeber and Wingro never approved that. In the book I'm writing, Anarchy After Graeber, I'll, I'll be uh, laying that out. There's so many. I'm just scrolling through. Like, you, know, you understand, this is all the, everything I'm telling you, plus all the stuff I'm not even mentioning, is the stuff that I read, you know, that I've read. Every one of these. This is what I mean by the fact that you, you really, you, you dig into all this. You spend thousands of hours reading this stuff. It all, the, it all becomes apparent. It really does. I recommend that primitivists, anarchists, anti-civ folks all try to look anywhere they can at the work of the anthropologist Jerome Lewis out of the University College London. Just a brilliant guy. Probably the best ethnographer and scholar of hunter-gatherer egalitarianism uh, in our current era. Um, so have a look for Jerome Lewis. You can Google that online. He has a lot. He has video talks, things like that. Pay attention to that. Um, but And he has a lot of good, good articles that he's written. Um, and his PhD dissertation is called Forest Hunter-Gatherers in Their World, which I think you can, you can read that really makes some great case and a really good description for these basic anarchist societies in the Central African rainforest. Uh, he works with the people called Mbengele. Uh, Brian Morris was an anarchist anthropologist. And he wrote some pretty interesting stuff. He worked with the Hill Pandaram people in, in India. But he wrote one article called Anarchism, Individualism, and South Indian Foragers, Memories and Reflections. See, there is a theme, right, that even though a lot of the anthropologists kind of shy away from the dirty A-word, there's also a theme within anthropology, particular hunter-gatherer studies, where they kind of come to the logical conclusion that a lot of this aligns with, you know, anarchist literature and anarchist theory. And so this, the anarchist uh, outlook has always existed, too, within hunter-gatherer studies. Um, not because that's what these people were seeking when they do their research, but it just kind of becomes apparent, right? And I don't think that it becomes so apparent, so obvious, an actual anarchist praxis on the ground in any other field of, of study than it does in hunter-gatherer studies. On gender egalitarianism, any of the work of Camilla Power is worth checking out. You can Google her and watch some of her talks. She has several papers as well. She has some videos that you can watch online. Uh, I'm sorry. She's part of the radical anthropology group, right? Yeah, that's right. She is absolutely a brilliant evolutionary anthropologist that all people interested in gender politics and hunter-gatherers and anarchist theory should be paying attention to. There was a book by Price and Brown in 1985 called Prehistoric Hunter-Gatherers, The Emergence of Cultural Complexity. That's just another one that, that adds to all this, this conversation. You see, this is 1985, okay? For decades... Anthropologists have been trying to say, look, not all 
hunter-gatherers are egalitarian. They're not all, they don't all fit the model of San Hadza and so forth. Um, but somehow that all gets overlooked by mainstream society. And then they start to accuse everyone of romanticizing hunter-gatherers. But in the anthropology community, that's not been the case. They've always been open about this and trying to identify, you know, how these mechanisms arise in, again, in a, in a baseline human society like hunter-gatherers. So it's just really important to understand how this complexity evolves if you want to actually get to a cogent anarchist theory. If you're not reading James C. Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed, an anarchist history of upland Southeast Asia, then you're really dropping the ball on your attempt to have a cogent anarchist theory. So that should be read. I think all of Mark Seeley's books are really worth reading. He's a great author. Uh, Anarcho-primitivist psychologist out of Washington. Nomads of the Borneo Rainforest by Bernard Salato. That's a really important book. Really describes very clearly a small band anarchist hunter-gatherer society in Borneo, the, the Penan. James Sussman's Affluence Without Abundance was very well done. That's a recent book on the Son Bushman. Of James Woodburn's articles that he wrote on the Hadza uh, would be really important reading for aspiring anarcho-primitivists, especially James Woodburn's article from 1982, Egalitarian Societies. So that should be enough to keep everybody busy for quite a long time. I hope that's helpful, and I'm sure folks won't read all of that, but I think it'd be really benefit them if they started reading some of these things, especially more dense academic stuff, because it really can open your eyes to some important truths. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on and, you know, doing this, this because I think you're one of the most well-read, if not the most well-read guest I've had on, particularly in regards to anthropology. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to, to give us an insight to what you think is important anthropological work that relates to anarcho-primitivism. Because like you say, like the evidence is there, whether or not, ironically, the people that are gathering the evidence can't seem or are unwilling to make that connection in most cases, which is really interesting and, of course, really disheartening. But again, I appreciate you taking yeah, the time to come on and do no, that. I'm happy to do it, Artemis. And uh, the thing, the thing to be said, really, is that unfortunately, no, no author, no scholar has ever taken the full suite of anthropological data on these subjects and put them together into, into a one readable work. It's never been done. And so most of the anarcho-primitivist oriented texts that are out there now, uh, which should be commended. I mean, there's some great work that's been done like by John and, uh, and so on, but none of them actually do the job that needs to be done. So this is the other thing is, is that we don't really have, we don't really have the text, uh, the necessary text to really, to really make our points as solid as they could be made. And so that's my project, really. That's what I've decided to do after, after studying this stuff for over 20 years. I've decided to kind of write the book, sort of the, the 21st century anarcho-primitivist manifesto, using all this anthropological data, trying to put it all together in one package but also making, trying to make the writing so it's a page turner and not a bunch of dense 
boring stuff. So that's the challenge uh, that I've decided to take on, and and it's it's going to take me still probably several more years to pull this off. But just so people are aware, that's what I'm up to, and please look for look forward to uh, some of the stuff coming out, particularly the sort of primer on all this that I'm going to be hopefully releasing late fall called Human Rewilding in the 21st Century: Why Anthropologists Fail. Uh, that'll be addressing very strongly not just the anthropologists who are the sort of postmodernist leftist naysayers, but those arguments will also cover uh, that general attack that people try to make from uh, from all sorts of different political dispositions and, and ideologies against anarcho-primitivism. Well, again, you know, I appreciate you coming on. This has been a really insightful conversation. I guess what we could end it on is this question. How can people find your work and support you? Is there like a, I mean, you're not very online. I think we're, and most people have probably picked up on that at this point, but how can people support your work or support you directly? Yeah, I don't have anything. I have no website, uh, no platform. Um, mm-hmm. I need to get that going. It's probably in the works because I'm going to try to publish this first book really soon. And then from there, I'm going to probably need a website for it and everything else. And I, how people could support me really i i'm horrible with technology it stresses me out and um, i know i'm gonna have to play along with the web to if i'm gonna do this so if someone could help me make a website for this and um and just help me along with getting things promoted once when i finish this first book and then i'm gonna have plan for uh at least two more really heavy hitting books on these topics coming out soon after so I could really use the help from someone who does online stuff to help me get the get it up and running for the so I can promote it all. And so I guess is there anything else that you you want to say before we wrap this up? Thanks so much for doing this, Artemis. Um, there's so much to talk about. I um, could talk for hours about all these things, and it's so nice to know that we have done that. Oh, what's that? <laughs> I said we have talked for hours, and it's just you know. It's so funny how some how similar this is just to all the phone calls we've had, and it's so nice to finally fucking record it, you know? Yeah, it's awesome. It's what's really awesome is to know there's people like you out there who actually care and have the energy um and will to get into everything really deep that we've been talking about because it's few and far between to find people like that anymore. Especially, you know, uh mm-hmm. uh, you know, since you're in your twenties and you have all this energy and I just uh I hope there's other people like you out there. And um, if people are listening, uh, follow in Artemis's footsteps and get into this stuff because it's vital. It really matters. And those of us who are paying attention and um, uh, not slacking off on all this are the ones who will actually make a difference uh, as the world moves on here. I firmly believe that. Um, and especially we, if we can get this stuff out to younger kids who are just learning about the world, that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, and I, I always appreciate it because you know we'll get personal here on the on the podcast. We've been doing that a little bit more. Is uh, you know I've only known you since I don't know when did I respond to you because your email went to my fucking spam and I missed it for like a month and a half and I felt so bad. I think it's. I don't know, maybe April or May we started talking, I think. I can't remember anymore. I mean, it's just incredible that, you know, I've, you know, we barely know each other, but we also know each other pretty well at this point. You know, it, I think it's it, it's interesting to know that when I meet people 
that I can just mesh with so easily. I mean, this has been like a, such a casual conversation. Like I said, these are like our phone calls, right? This has been such a good conversation for fucking three hours on my <laughs> end almost. Um, it just, it's awesome. And I want to say, you know, thanks for coming on, man. It's fucking, you know, you do the work, you have the theory. And John talks about this. The issue with primitivism, a lot of people are either really into the practice or really into the theory. And man, you do both. And it's fucking awesome. Oh, well, you, you need to do both. Really, I know that's that's takes takes a lot of mm-hmm. energy, but if you're mad, if you're not uh, staying on top of the theory, you're gonna fuck up the practice. Um, meaning, man, when I say that, I mean you're gonna you're gonna start creating these 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 foundational mechanisms that generate crisis that we're in now, right? That's why you have to pay attention to the theory. So when you go about these things, you're really you're really on your toes. Um, because we know we know a lot. We've, mm-hmm. We we're able to use uh, what we understand with anthropological record and just basic history to know to know a lot, and we shouldn't be lazy about it. So um, I know all kinds of people who are right. really good at, at at bushcraft and primitive skill stuff and doing survival stuff, whatever. But yeah, most of them are clueless about a lot of the theory. And uh, they're all inter- the thing is, those people are usually really right. interested, and in it. it's just not where they've put their time. But those are the kind of people who you can actually sit down. They will actually talk mm-hmm. to you about it. They'll get into it. Like you sit around with those people at the primitive skills gathering and you're working on like a, uh, like a, a little project together, you know, with your hands. And then you can start talking about the theory stuff and they'll, they'll actually get really into it. Wow. This is awesome. I, I've, this is what I, it's funny too. The people who are the practitioners will tend to say, yeah, I've always thought about it that way. It's so glad to hear someone put it to words. Right. Now, Right. It's the, it's what I've been thinking about is what I've been calling the impulse, right? It's just this natural. That's kind of right. Coming because up on it. I was going to say, contrast that with the people who just deal with theory all the time. And then, then, then they're the ones who are actually harder to talk to it all about. And the ones who always want to counter argue and get all like intense and postmodern and stuff. And right. And also like, uh, then they're they're not doing anything physically with their minds and bodies, and you, you're going to go nowhere fast if you're just sitting around theorizing. Like, in fact, these people who these the, the so-called anarchists who just spend their time theorizing and writing stuff online and some deep philosophy stuff, they're not doing fuck all, and um, they shouldn't be claiming that they are. And uh, uh, the people who really we all need to be following the people who are the practitioners, the physical practitioners. If I had to choose, I would choose that over the theory. Yeah, I mean, that's you put it pretty well. And, you know, I'm, I've talked about it. I'm not so deep into it as I wish I was. And I wish I was into it more, but it's just how it is. But, you know, I'm trying to do what I can living in living where I do in a fairly urban space. You know, a lot of it's like eating the berries. Like for me, a lot of it. And I think this is a time for advice is like if you feel self, self-conscious about it, sometimes I really do. I feel self-conscious. But for me, it's like, yeah, just I mean, little things like take two hours off your phone you spend more time with people around you read a book fucking go outside and just like appreciate it like try and get to know the plants around you like i'm i've become really good at identifying plants particularly invasive ones pull them up eat a fucking berry you know track things that you find you know what i mean just become like knowledgeable about the world around you because i think it's really easy to be a primitivist and then get really self-conscious you don't have the skills but understand like that's on purpose you've been de-skilled like there's a history of de-skilling and that's on purpose because if you have the skills it negates the role of the state 
Because if you can be self-autonomous or autonomous with a group, then the state doesn't mean anything. It's not, it doesn't mean shit, you know? Well, I think this is it. a good place as any to end it. I can hear you're out wandering. For those that didn't know, friend Jamie here had his, uh, it's a smokehouse, right? Raided by a grizzly bear and has a dead to go outside and made sure the bear's not taking all his fucking fish. You know, typical primitivist Alaskan shit going on in the background of an uncivilized episode. Yeah, I've been sitting here the whole time just uh, right next to my fish rock in a chair talking to you. Won't lie, I got a 10 mil Glock and a can of bear spray sitting here right next to me just seeing if this bear's going to come back. Hey, well, I'm glad you didn't get eaten halfway through the episode. I, I gotta say that. I think uh, I think I said my, my good prayers to the bear and the bear got a little bit of food and... um. I think Bear and I are on good terms, and uh, that's that's the best outcome. So, pretty happy. Yet. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm happy again, Jamie, that you've come on. I think it's been a long time in the making, and I'm I'm excited to see what people what kind of conversations come out of this and uh, how it's received. And I know we've said a lot of shit people are uncomfortable with, but I, I've been kind of thinking about this since my conversation with Jessica is that primitivism is an invitation to live to live and to think dangerously. And you got to be okay with that, being an anarchist. You know, there is no safe space. There's only brave, brave or, you know, brave spaces. You That's know? right. You know, someone, so. Someone's got to do it. Someone has to take on that courage. Look look where things are at. I mean, it's so scary. You know? And there, look, there's not going to be hope. Hope is not in some mass society agenda. You know, at this point, you know, we, we really are in this, in a, in a process of a, of of a, a bottleneck, right? Where cert- certain pathways are, go- are going to s- succeed, or, or at least have a better chance, and 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 the other ones aren't. So you you got you're gonna have to choose a side. At this point, you can't just continue to play along um, with just to make everyone happy, you know. Well, I again, I'll, we'll wrap it here, Jamie. Thanks again for coming on. This has been the Uncivilized Podcast. Thank you for listening.